Hello and welcome to Ask the Expert, a daily series from half eight till 9am every morning to help small businesses. You can ask any questions that you've got in the comments or hashtag QBATE on Twitter. If you need any more advice, please join the official Intuit QuickBooks SMB community group on Facebook. Accountants and business experts are on hand 24-7. So now we've got the intro out of the way, please allow me to introduce myself. So I'm Carl Reader, and thank you so much for joining us. If the technology allows as well, we might have a fun poll coming up as well during the session. So stay tuned because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So um, first of all, let's start with who is Carl? And I think the best way to describe myself, despite the flashy images that Intuit have put out there, is that I've been an accidental accountant and then in turn an accidental business owner. I fell into my first career at the age of 16, not really knowing what I was going to do. Um, fast forward a little way and I ended up buying out the business that I was involved in. I've been involved in investing in businesses. I've started businesses. I've been involved in exiting businesses and I've advised thousands of businesses along the way as well. So you can truly say that I've been on all sides of the table. I've also had the immense pleasure of writing three business books. My first two, The Startup Coach and The Franchising Handbook, are available at all good bookstores and on Amazon. And my next one, Boss It, is due for launch in October. It's been launched in the UK on 3rd of October, US and rest of the world for global release on the 27th of October. So please do get your Amazon pre-order in. I would really appreciate it. Um, and in that book, what I've done is really shared the stuff that I've learned along the way. And it's not just anecdotal experiences. It's certainly not a biography. But it's actually the um, actionable tools about the stuff I've learned. And within it, I talk about my dream plan, do review process. I've also written a very last minute chapter about how businesses can pivot and adapt after coronavirus. Uh, because, you know, clearly that's very relevant and ensuring that we um, focus on restarting, rebuilding and flourishing. And you will see if you're watching this now on the live stream, but we've got a poll. The poll is live. The technology gods are there to help us. So what I would like you to answer is the question, have you pivoted your business during COVID-19? So that was great timing. I have to thank the Intuit gang for getting that up at just the right time. So within the book, I talk about the restart, rebuild and flourish. I talk about dream plan, do review. But I find that books are an amazing, a fantastic way of getting into the mind and into the psyche of the person who's written it. So the best way, for example, to spend five hours with Phil Knight, who was the founder of Nike, or Richard Branson, is to read their books. It's the only opportunity that you would get to sit there and really absorb the story and the knowledge and the experiences that they've had along the way. And that brings me very nicely to a question that was what raised as I was promoting this episode. So your questions that you send at the moment will get curated and sent over. However, we had one submitted very early from a guy called Paul Rosser. So Paul, thank you so much for the question and the inspiration on this, which I promised you that I would think about it, but actually I'm going to answer it on, off the top of my head. And Paul asked, 
if I could um, ask an experienced business owner any question, you know, what, what question would I recommend? What question would I ask? And I felt that that was a really powerful question because whilst yeah, you might deem that I'm an experienced business owner, having been in business for um, 20 odd years, building a multi-million business, I see no reason why I shouldn't be asking that question of my peers and of those who've done better than me. So it it was a question that just got my creative juices flowing. And I I really enjoyed such a, a, a big picture question. And my thinking on it is that the questions that I believe are most powerful are the simple questions. So if I was advising somebody about what questions they should ask an experienced business owner, it would all be around the what, the how, and the why. What did they do? How did they do it? And why did they do it? Those three questions together are extremely powerful. So what did you do? That gives you the story. That gives you the understanding of um, what the entrepreneur, what the business owner, what the uh, yeah, who, whoever it is you're speaking to, what steps did they take? Now, it's all well and good understanding what steps somebody takes, but if you don't then understand for how they did it, you know, how did they get into the position to take those steps? How did they raise the funds? How did they launch the product, etc.? It's impossible. You know, the what is, for example, um, if we look at a um, a chef, the what is the product that they serve. It's the meal. It's the um, you know, I, I don't know the chicken cocker van. It's it's the product that they deliver. But the how is the recipe. And um, so I would follow up the what with the how. How did you do it? Yeah, what ingredients did you put in? What was it that enabled you to do this? And then the final question would be the why. Um, so I, I would look at the what, I'd look at the how, then the why. What is it that motivated them? What is it that driven them? And what is it that continues to motivate them, that continues to drive them? And with those three questions, I think that it will be an eye-opener for anyone. Now, I, I did, you know, whilst I didn't think about the um, specifics of the answer to this, I'm thinking now about the questions that I asked experienced business owners as um, as I was developing in business. And I, I just acted like a sponge and tried to soak up knowledge from them. You know, I, I remember dearly speaking to some martial arts instructors who had built some very big businesses, um, national chains and the way that they, um, the way that they had done it, was um, was quite remarkable. But what I really learned from them was about their personal development and how they improved themselves to then improve their business. And I guess it would be remiss of me not to answer those three questions myself: the what, the how, and the why. So, what did I do? Um, if we look at the core business of DNT, what did I do um, to make DNT a success? We identified a core market that we could focus on, and we focused relentlessly on our niche. We focused on our stakeholders in the business, which we referred to as our five stars. So we put the um, team right at the top of our star. We then focused on our paying customers and the markets that we served. So the market was franchising. The paying customers were clearly those who um, paid us their checks. And then we focused on our community and our industry, the finance world. Um, 
so we focused on that. We made sure that we came up with something that was absolutely game-changing for that world that no one else can replicate. And we lived to our um, we lived to our values, which is being professional, caring, passionate, and innovative. Now, then we move on to the how we did it. And there's a whole range of tools that we use. You know, some of them I share in my book, so I'm not going to share them all now. Um, but you know, we used a range of tools be it in our innovation and the way that we assess innovations, um, be it in our approach to systemizing what we do, be it in our approach to, um, you know, utilizing um, various management methodologies to increase efficiencies and to increase our margins and so on. Loads of stuff there in the how and then the why. Why did I do it? I'll be honest, I came from a very humble upbringing. I came from... um, yeah, I, 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 there weren't a lot of money around. I was from a council estate and just had a very normal upbringing, certainly didn't have a spoon in my mouth and left school for my GCSEs. And I guess the why behind what I do and why I do it is that I don't want to return there. I want to make sure that if, you know, that I've always got a few quid in my pocket. I want to make sure that I can, um, you know, I can pay for my family. We can always pay our own way. Um, I want to make sure that I can leave a legacy in this world and that I can be heard. Um, yeah, there's a number of reasons why I do what I do as well. So hopefully that's given you a very snapshot of um, the what, the why, and the how. Um, clearly, this is something that I could talk about for ages, but that would be remiss of me because I can already see that we've got a number of amazing questions coming in. So if you'd allow me, I'd now like to turn to the questions. And my first question is from Sky. Now, Sky sent a message um, through Facebook. So Sky, thank you so much. And Sky says, more and more businesses are digitizing their operations. But do you think there is still value in good old-fashioned face-to-face meetups? What value can this bring? Sky, I'm going to answer this very quickly. Yes, absolutely yes. Business is human to human. It's not B2B or B2C. It's H to H, human to human. We're a societal um, being. And as humans, we crave societal contact, but we are slipping into the stay-at-home economy. And there are certain things that just simply cannot be done um, through virtual means. Now, I think that we've um, all over the last few months seen that technology that we've perhaps been dabbling with or we've used to an extent has been able to replicate human connection to some extent. But it is my core belief that there is still a place for um, good old fashioned face to face meetups and the old way of doing things. And there's a number of reasons for that. So the first is that as small businesses, and I'm going to um, I'm going to make a presumption, Sky, that you're not the CEO of you know one of the top five FTSE 100 companies. Um, please, please excuse me if I've got that wrong. Uh, but the target audience for this is small businesses. So hopefully um, we're talking on the same wavelength here. As small business owners, we just simply cannot compete at the level of automation and the level of systemization that the truly big dogs can. So we have to find other ways of competing. And when we look at innovation and we look at how people can stand out, um, the things that cannot be automated are specialist human skills and interpersonal human skills. So I talk about this far more in my book, um, but the interpersonal skills are where entrepreneurs in particular really do flourish. 
So that's the first area. The second area is that there is a management model by a guy called Michael Porter, where he looks at the difference between being a product differentiator and a cost leader. Now, a product differentiator is um, somebody who does the very best and they offer maybe better service or a premium product. They find a way of really standing out. And a cost differentiator is very much stack it high, sell them cheap. Now, moving towards digital communications is a step away from a premium product. Um, I know some people, particularly tech businesses, will look at that and sharp inhale a breath. But the reality is that for the smaller businesses, it's the bond and the connection that you have with your customers. There's no better way to get that bond and connection than face-to-face. You know, certainly, if you were to compare a video call to a face-to-face conversation, the face-to-face conversation will have some subtleties and nuances of communication that just simply aren't conveyed through video, no matter how good your webcam or speakers are. So, I think that given that we need to focus on how we set ourselves apart rather than the race to the bottom in automation and cutting costs, given we've got to focus on our interpersonal skills, that there is certainly a place for uh, that face-to-face human touch. Um, I think that also we need to bear in mind that I touched on earlier the stay-at-home economy. As humans, we are becoming primed to the subscription world. We're becoming primed to watching Netflix rather than going to the cinema, to ordering delivery rather than going out to a restaurant. Um, you know, we've you know, perhaps rather than uh, walking or cycling to work, we might jump in an Uber. You know, stuff is being automated around us, and often there are you know there are days where people just do not speak to another human outside of their own house. Now, for those that live alone, that's um, yeah, that must be horrific. Yeah, myself being um, a, a reasonably extroverted character, being quite a um, sociable being, that would be really tough for me personally. And I know that Starbucks, the reason why they ask you your name when they um, put it on the coffee, is because they know that nobody else might have a conversation with you that day. There is that very real risk. So look, anything that we can do as a business to truly engage with our customer beyond um, superficial contact, beyond mass-mailed emails, beyond hiding behind a keyboard or a webcam, I think is to be embraced and encouraged. So I think there is huge value to be had, um, both with our existing customers, networking, finding new customers. So Sky, thank you so much for that question. And um, be out there, see people, enjoy it, and have fun while doing business as well. Our next question is coming through Instagram DM. So Suzanne, thank you so much for sending this in. And Suzanne asks if I have any experience with crowdfunding a business idea. Um, She's wondering when somebody knows that a business idea is good enough where people will invest. I have some experience. And I actually investigated crowdfunding for um, one of the businesses that I founded uh, as an opportunity for uh, the fundraise, but also as a opportunity to attract both investors and buyers at the same time. And I think that that's the key thing with crowdfunding. So for those who are not aware of crowdfunding, and I'm sure um, mo- most of you will know of crowdfunding, have heard of it, there's, there's two types of crowdfunding. You've got equity-backed crowdfunding, where you go to the crowd to invest in shares in your business, and there's reward-based crowdfunding, where you fill up your order book, 
before you've started trading. So you sell your products and then pay for it to be developed. You know, that, that's very broadly the, the two. And, and there are sometimes hybrids of the two. Now, it's with crowdfunding, there's a few risks. And the risks I feel um, ethically obliged to share. And the risks are pretty much on the investor perspective that it's an unregulated market. Pretty much anybody can tick the box and invest. And there are a number of zombie companies that are actually valued quite high on a crowdfunding site, but are no longer trading. And again, I can say this not from my um, founder perspective where I looked into it, but as an investor, I've been on the other side and invested in, um, I've invested in a few businesses to understand the mechanisms behind crowdfunding, and I've lost a few quid. Um, even the business that I thought was great um, was actually, uh, it was the subject of a um, of an investigative journalist in the Times in the end. So, you know, it's very, there are some very real risks to crowdfunding from the investor side. Um, so investors are doing due diligence and the platforms are doing due diligence. Now, realistically, what happens with crowdfunding, and this is my personal opinion, is there's a couple of factors that determine the success of a crowdfunding campaign. The first one is the early traction. And the early traction comes down to having outside investors pre-committed. So if you're raising, let's say, £300,000, most crowdfunding platforms need you to have already raised a certain amount of that. And actually, when you go live, really, you want about 60% already committed and then put through the platform to show traction because it's a bit like, yeah, these sites are a bit like Google. They prioritize the ones that, that um, are getting traction, the ones that they feel will be attractive. The second thing with crowdfunding is that it all comes down to the pitch and presentation and appealing to investor appetite. An investor appetite is very rarely logical. So investors tend to make decisions in the same way we all do, but they invest emotionally, they buy emotionally, but then they justify the emotion with logics afterwards. So the investment, the commitment will actually come about through wanting to do something, you know, wanting to make a difference in the world, wanting to be on a new trend but then they will back it up with the logics of your plan and so on. So it's really important that you have a polished pitch that explains exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how you do it. Then and only then, you need to then focus on what will, what will make the investor commit logically, um, what will justify the investment for them, making sure that you've got a decent investor pitch and so on. Um, you need to make sure that it's all packaged up. Now, Whilst crowdfunding is seen as possibly a, a relatively easy way to raise funds, I would approach that with caution because crowdfunding can also potentially jeopardise future investment rounds if there's not um, one lead investor. So you need to be really careful what you do and not look at it as the easy way out of raising funding. Um, so, Suzanne, I hope that helps you. I'm going to move on to Tara's question. So, Tara has sent a question in from uh, Facebook. Do I think the mindset of an entrepreneur is different compared to 10 years ago? Uh, Tara's interested to see what type of individual it takes to go self-employed today compared to in the past. Um, yes, I do. But no, I don't. And I don't want to get splinters um, by sitting on the fence with this one. 
Well, I think there has been a shift, and I actually um, I, I do talk about this at some length in my new book. Um, I think there's been a shift in that entrepreneurialism is seen as the you know the fashionable thing to do. It's seen um, far more legitimately than it has been before, and I think that there's been a change whereby previously business owners have. Um, generally, and this is very much generalization, been more likely to be accidental business owners. So that is, it's a family business that's been passed on to them, or they've been a long-serving employee that's been promoted or or similar. It's kind of something that's happened to them rather than happened intentionally. Now, I think nowadays, there are um, kids going through school, and they're seeing... Um, perhaps Gary Vaynerchuk or other motivational um, social media stars talking about entrepreneurialism and they aspire to that lifestyle. You know, maybe they're seeing the pictures of the Lamborghinis and so on. So I think that there's a difference in aspiration. Um, I wouldn't say it's 10 years. I think there's a bigger gap than that. Um, However, the fundamentals are still the same. I think that there are still a vast proportion of the self-employed are um, not what you would call the traditional entrepreneur. Um, they're not what you would call um, you know, the Richard Bransons of this world. They are just people who wanted to do their own thing. They are just normal people like you or I, Tara, who um, decided that they don't want to work for their boss anymore. And you know, they either want to earn a few quid more or they want to take Fridays off or they want to have the choice and the control over what they do. They want to control their time, their income or their life. Um, so, you know, it is a myth that entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs by design, I believe. I think that there is a few. Um, but also, you know, I know that from mentoring and speaking at universities and understanding some of those who go through on entrepreneurial um, degrees and embark on that route of education, but many of the people in that stream actually will probably end up being um, analysts at venture capital companies, or they will end up being involved in the business world, but not necessarily as entrepreneurs themselves, because business ownership comes about, you know, not necessarily through academic smarts. It's not necessarily through um, family money or anything like that. It's something that happens and that hasn't changed. That's always been the case. So, that feels like a really long-winded way of answering your question. So do I think the mindset has changed? No, because I think we put entrepreneur up there for some reason. We put it as um, something to aspire to, as something to be. But actually, business owners are like you and I, Tyler. You know, I don't know you, Tyler, but I can imagine that we're probably fairly similar. We're just normal people um, who do what we do and it, it, it almost happens to us. Um, there's been a shift of how people come into it, but I don't believe that it takes a different type of in, individual. You know, business ownership um, takes all sorts. So, Tara, thank you so much for that, Jackson. Jackson, thank you so much for your Twitter message. Um, Jackson has asked if I've got any good advice when it comes to increasing product mix to help. Um, as um, Jackson's gratefully allowed to open his business back up again, he's an independent camera shop. So, Jackson, um, 
been a tough time for us all and especially for those in retail food and beverage and so on i empathize with you dearly you know i i do feel fortunate that most of my businesses were able to keep running you know clearly my speaking had to stop um but i yeah, I, I can't even pretend to have gone through the pain that you have. So thank you so much on behalf of UK PLC for reopening and looking at where you're going with this. It's um, admirable and you really should be proud of what you're doing. So Jackson, um, when it comes to increasing product mix, look, I think that the one way that retailers are going to stand out against the Amazons of this world, against Jessup's online offering, against um, any commoditized stack it high, sell it cheap service, is by the value that you can add. So whilst product mix and diversification is important, and it's important to have a range of product, you don't want to be left with dead stock. And that's a very tricky balance as an independent retailer to understand what you should hold and what you, should, what you shouldn't hold and what's going to shift and what isn't. The important thing, Jackson, is to have stuff that you are passionate about, that you care about, that you are knowledgeable about. Because look, if a photographer can go into your shop and get advice from you, that's something that Amazon can never offer. And I think that, yeah, I, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hark back to something myself. Yeah, there was an independent clothes shop where I bought a pair of jeans. And yes, I paid probably 50 quid more for them than I could have got them online. You know, I probably could have got 50, 60% off by shopping around. But you know what? They're able to tell me, this is your body type and you want this brand of jeans. This is the shape that you should be going for. And just that bit of advice really helped me make an informed purchase. Now, I, I'm not a photographer myself, so I don't know the ins and outs of the language that your customers will speak, but I'm sure that there's ways that you can advise your customers and truly help turn it from a purchasing process to a buying experience. So product mix is important and listen to your customers. That will give you the best indication of how to increase your product mix um, You know, by getting the feedback from them of what they want. However, I would suggest that the number one thing that you need to be majoring on is creating that buyer experience, making sure that when your customers come in, you are the only place that they will buy from. They won't go anywhere else because of Jackson. Now, Scott, we've got a Twitter message from you as well. Thank you so much. Um, Scott says, how do you see the small business landscape developing over the next couple of months as businesses are allowed to get back to work? If you do have any advice, see if a lockdown was to happen again. So... I think that the business landscape is going to develop and we are potentially in for a rocky road. I mean, you've touched on the fact that lockdown might happen again. Um, this is just my belief. So please, please don't take this as um, some kind of educated forecast. But my belief is that there will not be another national lockdown in the way that we've seen. However, there is a very real risk that there could be increased restrictions. There's a very real risk that there could be geographical lockdowns. There's a very real risk that we could be forced to stop trading again. So whilst I don't believe we'll see a blanket lockdown again unless things get really bad, I think that we are very likely to see other measures and we do need to be prepared for them. I think we need to combine that with the fact that the funding landscape is going to become so much more difficult as well. So C-bills and bounce back loans, if you haven't applied for them, apply for them yesterday. Um, they, the schemes run out at the end of September. You need to make sure that you're well funded because the banks 
love them or hate them, they're not likely to be lending too much afterwards. That's my belief. Um, Secondly, we need to be thinking about the grants that are out there, about all of the opportunities that are out there. And I think that really we need to knuckle down, do what we can do and make sure that we protect our businesses. Make sure that you've got a cash flow plan in place and so on. And um, just be prepared for a rocky ride. If lockdown happens again, we can't control it. So focus on what we can control, um, but be mindful of the fact that it can happen. And I would like to wish you all the best with it. Now, I'm very conscious that we are coming up to the end here, and I've not been able to answer all of the questions um, that we've had come through today. It's been great to see all the questions come through. And I would like to just touch on the poll that we had. So we asked, um, has your business pivoted during COVID-19? So I would like to thank the Intuit QuickBooks team for running that live poll. 33% 33% have pivoted, 67% haven't. So I, I'm actually I'm actually relatively surprised to see that because certainly in my experience, you know, we, we've had to pivot, but only slightly. We haven't pivoted massively, but we've had to adapt. Uh, but I've seen some fantastic examples of pivoting. So thank you so much for contributing to that poll. If there's any questions that you've got, please get in touch with the QuickBooks support team. So they can be reached through Facebook or you can reach out to me. So I'm easily found on social media at Cole Reader. Um, You'll find me on all of the platforms, everything from Facebook and LinkedIn right the way through to TikTok. So please reach out to me. And as mentioned, my new book, Boss It. Coming up on Ask the Expert on Monday is Aaron Patrick. Now, Aaron is head of accounts at Boffitt's a UK Intuit QuickBooks certified trainer, and he's also the director of the Apple Call Group, a small family empire, which ensures that he practices what he preaches to all of his lovely clients. And he's talking about something that's vitally important. He's talking about the MTD changes, making tax digital. So if you don't know about it, you need to get to know about it. So tune in on Monday. Just a quick reminder, if you need any more advice, please join the official Intuit's QuickBooks SMB Community Group on Facebook. Accountants and business owners are on hand 24-7. Thank you and stay safe.